Hello, hello, Dr. Willenberg. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Eddie. Uh, it's good to see you. Thanks, thanks for having me on and, and everyone for joining in. I know you probably don't want to dwell on the beard too much. Uh, I, I got to just let me just say one thing about it, though, because er, earlier today I had a little stubble and I was trying to decide whether whether to shave or not before the show. And I'd seen your other videos and I was thinking, uh, no, I can't compete. I would just be humiliated if I showed up with my stubble and you had your full on beard. <laughs> but now I realize uh, maybe I could have competed a little bit. So yeah. you should you should. I wish you would have told me about this before uh, before I shaved oh. today. <laughs> It is so hard to even talk about. Um, <laughs> All right, yeah, I don't just... <laughs> want to. We don't have to dwell on that. Uh, but I did. I did remember uh, my my debate with myself about whether to shave before. It does. Oh man, my! I even uh, joked around and told my wife um, I was going to find like a uh, a beard wig uh, to <laughs> to maybe wear and cover up <laughs> until it gets back. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's going to be all out grow, no shave for a while. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. The the whole baby face, I just I can't do it. It's uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, uh, uh, kind of a little bit of your background, and and you know anybody who's uh, lost and don't know who you are in ethics. Sure, I guess I'm the godless ethics guy. Uh, <laughs> that's what I've become. I didn't set out to be that guy, but uh, you know. Uh, I try to roll with it. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like, uh, my, my journey to atheism, I guess is, I think pretty typical, at least in the, in the U S uh, I, I was raised, um, I guess in a religious fashion, at least my parents made me go to church, you know, regularly when I was a kid. Uh, and that was in the Lutheran tradition. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, like a kid, I, I remember I certainly believed in God and I remember praying and that sort of thing. And uh, and then when I entered my teen years, uh, you know, again, it's a very common thing, sort of became skeptical, had doubts and just gradually fell away. Nothing, nothing super dramatic, just sort of a gradual development uh, over time. Uh, and I, I think, I, you know, looking back, I probably did go through that period again, which is kind of common where. Um, I, the, the sort of new atheist attitude where you see religion uh, or Christianity maybe as silly and that sort of thing. Um, but I've, uh, if, if folks have seen me talk about this before, they'll know I, I was cured of that when I, when I spent a year at the University of Notre Dame as a graduate student. And I was hanging out, hanging around um, people like Elvin Plantinga and Peter Vandenwagen, who are serious Christians and super smart. Um, and uh, it's, uh, that, was, that was very humbling. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so where I've sort of come out from that is that, you know, I'm still an atheist, but um, have a tremendous respect for the Christian worldview and try to try to take it seriously. So I've kind of grown out of that new atheist attitude, uh, I suppose you would say. Um, and I, I think the way, uh, again, I didn't set out to become the godless ethics guy, but uh, I guess the, the sort of backstory there was... Um, the two areas I ended up being interested in, especially in grad school, you know, as I got more into philosophy turned out to be ethics and then also philosophy of religion. So sort of, you know, working in those, those two areas already. And so it was natural to think about connections between them. Uh, and then there's of course the moral argument, um, moral argument for God's existence, which probably as everybody knows, the basic idea there is um, very roughly if, if there's going to be, objective morality, mind independent truths 
about ethics and morality, certain things being objectively wrong, right or wrong, morally right or wrong, good or bad. The argument says the only way that can really be the case is if you have God as the basis or foundation or ground for those sorts of truths or that kind of objective morality. Uh, and so at the time when I you know, first encountered the moral argument, I was inclined toward atheism, but I was also inclined toward moral realism, thinking there are these objective truths. And so I was like, okay, well, this is a bit of, a, I got to think about this, right? Here's an argument that says I've got these two contradictory beliefs. <laughs> and so that's how I sort of got drawn into trying to develop or understand how there might be objective morality, even if there is no God to serve as the foundation or ground for morality. It was trying to figure out if, if there was anything in this moral argument, if I was going to have a problem <laughs> on, on my hands. So it, the way I became that guy is basically by trying to address this sort of challenge to these two beliefs that I was, uh, that I was inclined toward. So I get that's, that's the short version, I guess, of my, part of my backstory, <laughs> I guess you would say. Yeah, I, I could imagine um, being with, uh, being there with uh, Van Wagon and, and planning a, um, how uh, kind of humbling <laughs> that would be. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really, uh, Van Imwagen is, is probably one of my top favorite philosophers. Mm -hmm. um, he takes such um, a, a lot of the, the views and, and positions that he holds is, is so not typical for yeah. uh, theists. Uh, That's right. Um he brings such a good, good flavor and shakeup, you know, yeah. to the theist yeah. side of it. That that's absolutely right. I mean, he's he's super smart, um, but yeah, you're exactly right. And in fact, when I teach introduction to philosophy, uh, as is pretty typical, there's a unit on you know whether God exists, and so we're looking at arguments for and against the existence of God, and I often um, bring Van An Van Inwagen in in that part of the course because he's, he's a materialist, at least about human beings, uh, and yet he's a theist, and it kind of blows the student's mind. So this class, like earlier, there's a unit on whether, you know, we are, are we just our physical bodies or do we have non-physical souls as well? Uh, and so the students, as many do, they're sort of naturally inclined to think that some sort of dualism or believing in a soul and, and theism kind of go together. And so it's always very cool to bring in Van Inwagen as uh, this unusual combination of views. And then, as you, as you probably know, he's got this wild, uh, I say wild, interesting, unusual theory about, um, you know, the the afterlife. So that that's a sort of um, if you're a, if you're a physicalist about human beings and yet you think there's going to be some sort of afterlife, at least you've got some explaining to do. It's kind of easier to see how that might go if you have a non-physical soul. It's a little trickier. And so Van Wagen has a pretty interesting uh, theory about how that might happen. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I'm probably not too far away from him. Um, I, physicalism is, is very appealing to me. Um, mm -hmm. I, at this point, um, would probably consider myself more of a hylomorphist. Um mm -hmm. You know that the, there's not uh, the, the immaterial, uh, whatever that is, is you know just uh, that uh, with the material is just what the identity of what we are is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, this whole uh, typical 
modern day understanding of souls and, and this dualism, there almost seems to be really teetering on, you know, ancient Gnosticism with the mm -hmm. way that a lot of modern Christians think of the soul and the soul being you and, you know, um, but yeah. How did you, so what, what made you want to get into um, ethics itself? Is it just a kind of a trap door that opened up for you or? <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a good question. I think in my case, um, you know, I, I studied philosophy of course as, a, as an undergrad and there was uh, probably just one ethics course that I'd taken. And I, when I went off to grad school, this is at the university of Massachusetts, I wasn't really sure you know, really what I was doing, but what areas in philosophy I kind of wanted to, you know, get into. And I think in my case, what ended up happening was there was a particular professor at, at UMass at the time, Fred Feldman, who uh, I was more drawn to him and the way he did philosophy. He, uh, he, the sort of analytic style of this very clear, careful way of doing, doing philosophy and he specialized in ethics. So I ended up sort of getting drawn into ethics because I want, I just wanted to take all the classes that Fred Feldman was teaching. Basically, I just really liked his way of doing philosophy and he did a lot of ethics. So I kind of ended up doing a lot of ethics. Uh, so that's how, how that went. Uh, although I think, um, so in, in ethics, uh, even though I started out, you know, sort of through Feldman's teaching and what he was focused on, he was really interested in utilitarianism and I've kind of turned away from that. Um, so early on, I was studying all, you know, about 20,000 different forms of, <laughs> of utilitarianism. So I was sort of immersed uh, in that. But um, yeah, but then, you know, as you probably can tell, my my main interest ended up being sort of at least partly in like meta ethics and these questions of, um, you know, can there be objective morality? If so, what what might its foundation be? That kind of thing. Uh, and then philosophy of religion, initially, it just had the coolest puzzles. So there's all these great logical puzzles. One of the first topics I worked on was omnipotence, just trying to understand omnipotence, where, I mean, the, there, there's a sort of category of puzzle arising from the fact that um, theists want to say that, of course, God is omnipotent, and yet they also want to say that typically that there are lots of things that he can't do. And so just trying to understand then what omnipotence might be and how it could be compatible with not being able to do certain things is just a kind of a cool uh, puzzle. So, so I got into ethics mainly through Feldman and then I got into philosophy religion mainly through the cool puzzles that it has, uh, like trying to understand omnipotence. And then that kind of, and as I was explaining before, um, the moral argument connects those two fields in a pretty, pretty interesting way. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it went. Yeah. That, um, that just kind of seems the way that, um, you know, philosophy goes, it's, um, you, you, they, there's so much overlap in so many different areas and, and mm -hmm. being ADHD, I'm, I'm terrible about <laughs> start. right now. My, yeah. my, my series on, uh, epistemology, I'm going over belief. Well, that is so intertwined with philosophy of mind. Yeah. I'm like veering off into, and I'm like, wait a minute. No, let's get it back over here. We're not doing philosophy of mind. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it, um, it definitely can can pull you in, in a ton of different directions. That that's absolutely right. Um, it's often very the different areas are often interconnected. Uh, another thing I think 
that you'll notice if you, when you start looking at these different areas, you see a lot of the same kinds of arguments um, in slightly different forms that are reappearing. So I teach the, at, at DePaul where I teach, I teach the philosophy of mind course. I don't really write very much in philosophy of mind, but I've, I've you know, learned about it in order to teach this class. And uh, there are a lot of sort of parallel arguments in philosophy of mind that have sort of correspond to certain arguments and debates in like meta ethics. So it's often very fruitful. Um, you can find like insights and connections in kind of surprising ways, but, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of rabbit holes you can get drawn into for sure. <laughs> You're working on one thing and you, it takes a turn and you end up somewhere else. <laughs> That's a, a, quite often with, you know, when I talk with, uh, with people about, um, you know, uh, who really, who aren't into, you know, philosophy. And, you know, they're like, well, you know, it's just, it's just a bunch of people thinking about thinking, and, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, I said, here's the thing. Take a, a shattered piece of glass, like, like you see in an automobile, that safety glass There's like a million little cracks in it. Mm -hmm. Well, find one crack out of all these million and the philosophers will spend their entire career on this one crack. You know, it's just, there's so many different other places to go and it can be overwhelming. Um, yeah. You know, no, that, somebody that's, doesn't have a vision. That's, that's very true. And uh, yeah, I guess the, you mentioned like sort of impatience or skepticism about philosophy, which I, I totally get um, it. Uh, it, you know, I, I love philosophy, of course, but even I, at a certain point, I'll hit my limit, like for the day or something. Like, okay, I've had enough, I've had enough philosophy. For the day. I always think of uh, David Hume, uh, 1700s Scottish philosopher, has this great line where he says something like, uh, "Be a philosopher, but amidst all your philosophy, be still a man." Man yeah. meaning human, like a person. So you definitely want to try to find that, uh, that balance. I think, I think another thing I would add is um, I do think philosophy is at its best when it's really combined with or informed by some empirical stuff. Um, so before the show, we were talking a bit about psychology and moral psychology. So I think ethics, for example, there's a ton of stuff happening in, in psychology that's very relevant to thinking about ethics, especially if you want to think about virtue and character, you got to have some understanding of what the human mind is like and, and sort of how it works. So I, I think, I, and in fact, at DePauw, I encourage our philosophy majors to be double majors so that they uh, sort of combine a philosophy going with, with something else. I think that's when philosophy is really at, at its best. Yeah, that's, um, though I'm not like uh, super into Thomism, that that's kind of one of the things that, that drew me to Aquinas was mm -hmm. his, um, you know, kind of trying to uh, marry, you know, the, the rationalism with the empiricism. Um, yeah. And uh, to me that it, it was such a, you know, um, breath of fresh air because, you know, mm -hmm. uh, tr historically you have the rationalists, which are rationalist and then the empiricists, which are empiricists. Uh -huh. And it's like, nobody kind of wants to come in the middle. Let's, you know, let's, yeah. let's put it together. <laughs> That's a great point. I think Aquinas is a great connection of sort of what I'm thinking of because 
I mean, it's it, it seems, I suppose, old fashioned at this looking back now. But at that time, uh, he was basically trying to combine Aristotle and Christianity. But at that time, Aristotle was the best science. So really what he was doing was was trying to combine, you know, Christianity with with science, the best science at the time. Um, so, yeah, he wasn't just sort of, you know, divorced from reality, um, thinking on his own. He did a lot of thinking, of course, but he was trying to inform it with like the best science of the time. The science has just changed. Right. I guess that's my take on it anyway. But I think his basic method is, I think, a good way of going about it. You can't you can't you can't have philosophy just sort of isolated. Uh, I mean, it's maybe obvious, but from, you know, what science has to say, for example. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, um, he goes off into this super deep, abstract um, <laughs> kind of thinking. And I'm just like, man, um, there's a know, lot of just, distinctions that. <laughs> that yeah. Yeah. It's uh, now I don't, yeah. he's not as bad as, uh, you know, later on Hegel. But, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, I did a little th- somebody had mentioned a while back uh, about, um, you know, I'm used to hearing dialectical, you know, or having dialectical uh, conversations or debates or, or mm-hmm. things like that. And somebody had mentioned Hegel's dialectics. Uh-huh. And, oh, my gosh, was that I read you know, uh, uh, several papers like three times and watched like four YouTube videos from instructors over mm-hmm. and over to kind of really wrap my head around. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, when it comes to Hegel, I guess my only request is don't ask me to explain anything uh, in, in Hegel. I, <laughs> I, it's funny. I actually took class in Hegel as an undergrad and, uh, I feel like I understood a few things, um, but that was a long time ago. But the one thing that stuck with me, I remember this, this, the professor had this great line where he said, okay, if you're reading Hegel and you don't understand what he's saying, just read faster. That way you just finish the reading at least. That's definitely one way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually have a, um, a friend of mine, uh, who's an atheist that uh, considers himself Hegelian, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, why? What? Why? <laughs> That's the only response that I have there. Um, well, it'll that. be interesting to. Uh, I mean, it's got to be an interesting guy to talk to, and I think the you know, if I were talking to him, I just want to explain. Okay, well, you're a Hegelian. Like, what is it? You know, what does that mean? What? What? What are you? What? As, what are you committed to as a Hegelian? Just. Uh, that would kind of be the first question, I think. Yeah. And yeah. Well, it's funny because people say, you know, well, if you can't explain it in easy terms, then you really don't understand it. And it's like, no, that's not how, you know, there's more continental kind of, um, I don't feel I, there's a lot of concepts there. I fully understand it, you know, as well as I can, but mm-hmm. there's no possible way. I could explain to somebody, you know, exactly what it means. I know what he means, but I can't tell you what he means. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So being, um, so is it still in um, uh, academia is, is it still pretty predominantly more with uh, realists and, and 
um, the ethics uh, as it has been traditionally? That's a good question. There's uh, there are these surveys now of, of professional philosophers that happen from time to time, and I haven't actually like fill surveys or something. Fill I haven't survey, checked, yeah. checked the results of the latest one, but um, so I'm just sort of sort of guessing. So. If I'm if I'm wrong, I, I acknowledge it. This is like sort of a guess, but my sense is that probably some kind of moral realism maybe is the majority position. But I, I'd be surprised. I, I don't know if it's the dominant. There are plenty of um, skeptics or what in in are often called uh, error error theorists. Yes, who, that is. Think that uh, it's like the new hot thing. <laughs> yeah, so that that camp is still around. Um, that goes back to. Uh, a, f- a figure that people may know, John Mackey in the history of philosophy. Yeah. He, he's a sort of famous defender of the, the problem of evil, but he was also a uh, so-called air theorist where he thought that um, when ordinary people talked about right and wrong and good and evil, they were trying to describe an objective reality, but Mackey just thought that there was no objective reality there to be described. So they were, they were just systematically mistaken. Like if, if people talk about like witches assuming there are no witches and there's all this witch talk, (laughs) it's not really describing any objective aspect of, of morality. So that position is certainly still around. Um, But I think the, uh, so, so on the one hand, like if if it's true, what I said that, that moral realism is the dominant or majority position that's misleading in a way, because in the moral realist camp, there are various, there's a lot of disagreement about what, it's like okay, we we think objective morality exists, but then the next question is okay, well, what what is it? Um, then you get lots of disagreements. So the fact that there are all these moral realists is is beneath that is a lot of disagreement about like to put it very roughly, like what this objective morality is kind of made out of. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I think there, at least as I see it, there are kind of three main positions. I would say one is. Um, Two, two of them are what you might describe as like reductive positions where they say, yeah, there's objective morality. Um, these, these sort of moral features, ethical features are actual objective features of the world. Certain things are right, right and wrong, good and evil. Um, but one option, a kind of naturalist reductive option says that, uh, well, in the end, these things are, these, these moral features are really just like natural features of things that could be studied by the empirical sciences. So I think Sam Harris, for example, folks may know, I think would be in, in that uh, camp um, where he thinks that, as I recall, goodness is just like human flourishing or happiness or something like that. Uh, and then there would be a kind of theist camp, which interestingly is at least partly a sort of reductive view where where some in that camp, they think, yeah, there are these objective moral features of things, but they're really just features of, of God or divine features or something like that. So it's actually, a, it's a reductive view also, but of a very different kind. And then there's the camp I'm in, uh, which says, well, these moral features are just their own kind of things. So they're like a third uh, thing. They don't really reduce to, to anything else. And that's where the, so this view, this camp that I'm in is sometimes described or labeled as non-naturalism. And that's what the non-naturalism is trying to, to, get, a, to get across. Um, moral features they probably depend on the natural features of things, but there's something over and above um, the natural features of things. So, which, as we were talking, would be um, pretty similar to um, 
Schaefer Landau's view. Um, That's right. Yeah. Um, but he for for some reason he was very reluctant to say Platonism. Um, mm-hmm. What is? And it's not just him. I've I've talked to several non-naturalists um, uh-huh. that just didn't wanted to avoid being um, labeled as, you know, Platonist is, is it just yeah. because of the uh, common misunderstandings of Platonism or um, the caricatures that a lot of people have? Because yeah. I, I think that if I was not a theist, I would probably be a Platonist. Yeah. So I think this is something that I, I, uh, I, I watched your interview with uh, Schaefer Land. I was, it was great. I thought, and one of the things that came up is you, you, the two of you were talking about all the isms in philosophy and, and uh, just the importance of like a lot of these isms can mean different things. And I think Platonism is, is one naturalism is certainly another. Uh, so I, I don't mind. Uh, I've, I've called myself a Platonist before, but we just want to be, you know, what, what do I mean when I, describe myself as a Platonist. I suspect people may be reluctant because Plato is so that, you know, you think Plato, you think of the forms, um, which I don't know how much we want to get into this, but, but very, very roughly the, the theory of forms is this idea that you have in the physical or material world, you have all these different particular objects and they all fall into different categories. So you've got all these things, things that are often very different from one another that, you know, a bunch consider a bunch of chairs which could be different from one another but we think they're all chairs same with like dogs and so on and so plato thought okay for each of these categories there is a non-physical ideal perfect version of that thing so there's like the form of of a chair a perfect chair which is not itself a physical chair uh and this is supposed to explain like why all these different physical things are chairs they somehow resemble or as he said they're like imperfect copies of the ideal perfect chair which exists in some mysterious realm um, outside of the physical world uh okay anyway so i think a lot of people today don't really believe in forms the way plato believed in them and so that i would guess is why they kind of want to shy away from people people label you a platonist and then oh but i don't believe in forms the way plato did so I'm not really a Platonist in that in that sense. So that might be part of what's what's going on. That, that's and I kind of say what, I don't really believe in, in forms like that either. That's part yeah. Of, I should, <laughs> I the chairness or yeah. the the tableness. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, well, not only that, I I, I I was thinking it was um, you know along the lines also of having to deal with um, you know like the interaction problem you know between the realm of the forms and the material mm-hmm. world and. Um, it just seemed to probably bring more baggage and kind of go down uh, that those rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so Plato thought that uh, these somewhat mysterious, non-physical, ideal forms could somehow causally impact the physical world. And yeah, it's pretty mysterious, you know, how that how that would work. So I think that's one of the in general, the you know the, this idea of the forms, I think these days are, are seen as kind of mysterious and, and probably weird, <laughs> yeah. and so that's probably why people might not be so crazy about being labeled a Platonist. Um, so, although I, I sh- you know I've at various points described myself as a Platonist, so I should probably say just what I meant by that. 
I mean, the main thing I meant was this this non-naturalist view where the the moral features of things are their own kind of thing, um, not reducible to uh, to something else. And then also, I think, I mean, another thing Plato perhaps is an idea he's associated with is objective morality, not really depending on the gods uh, or God, the will of God and so on. So that's another respect in which I would, I would be a Platonist, but uh, no forms, not yeah. a Platonist in that sense. Yeah. That's yeah. And, because he was, he was a realist about <laughs> that. The forms is, is existing. Um, yeah. Well then, and then you got to get into the, the one in the many, and then, you know, it just, there's so many th- things that, yeah, it's, I like Plato. Um, I like Aristotle better, but uh, uh-huh. you know, his some of the ideas man you just people today were so anachronistic looking back like you know we had this kind of anachronistic snobbery like we're so smart and you know uh, with technological advances and things and then you you go back and you, you look at the level that these guys analyzed reality and in these complete whether you agree with them or not, I mean, just the amount of time describing, you know, fundamental things. And, and mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, um, they're, they're pretty, pretty smart people. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, right. I mean, I think, um, you see this all the time in philosophy, you might disagree with someone and yet think, okay, wow, they're, yeah, they're operating at a high level. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I don't believe in the forms, but Plato's still a genius, right? That kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. Um, at least groundbreaking. Um, <laughs> but um, now, whether there's a form for the ground, I don't know. But <laughs> now, so, <laughs> um, so, do you spend a lot of time defending um, realism uh, against anti-realists, or is it more of uh, having to defend? against theists on how you can be a realist uh yeah that's a good that's a great question for me it's been more the second thing and that's i mean partly because that's kind of the this particular challenge i find interesting most interesting but i guess it's also because just in philosophy i think there's less attention has been paid, at least among contemporary philosophers, to that particular challenge. So what I mean is, I mean, there's plenty of people on the realist camp trying to deal with various challenges from the people who, who are skeptical of there being objective morality at all. Um, there's much less, it's, it's sort of interesting, actually. I mean, there's much less attention, again, at least in contemporary philosophy, um, you know, philosophers alive today who are moral realists, but are basically addressing something like the moral argument and, you know, looking specifically at that kind of challenge. Um, so there, I, I think there is, you know, there was a real gap there, which of course in, is always exciting if you're trying to say something new or publish something <laughs> in an area, area that hasn't been worked over as much, at least again, in contemporary philosophy. And what, you know, one of the things that's, that's really sort of interesting about it is it, 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 it ends up being a, um, you look at, uh, you've got various, you know, what I would describe as non-theistic 
versions of moral realism. And by non-theistic, this is, I think, an important point. And this is true of my view. I don't, I don't think my view requires that there not be a God. My view is rather that um, there can be objective morality, even if there isn't a God. So it's, it's godless, not in the sense of like, it's incompatible with God existing, but rather it just doesn't require the existence of God. And, and by the way, related to that, I think, as I understand it, Richard Swinburne, I believe, has a view that's actually pretty similar to mine. So there's a theist who thinks there's objective morality, but at least some of it is just independent of, of God. Um, so it's it's not uh, it's only godless in the sense of not really needing God. It's not godless in the sense of like requiring that there not be uh, a God. Um, anyway, so you have uh, theories of of objective morality that don't require God, and then you have the theistic, various theistic or God based um, theories of morality. And so in the, in the course of my work, I've really gotten drawn into looking at some of these theistic theories and they're fascinating. So it just ended up being sort of super interesting. And again, it's, um, it's a shame there, you know, I think there should be a lot more dialogue between these two camps, uh, namely uh, moral realists in the theist side who are developing these God-based theories. And then, um, moral realists who are, who are developing theories that don't require God. There's a lot less discussion engagement between those camps than I think there should be. So that's one of the sort of gaps that I've, I've tried to fill. Uh, and, and it's just super interesting. I just as, as an example, Robert Adams, Christian philosopher has this book that some folks may know called finite and infinite goods. And it's just amazing. It's a masterpiece and it's just a super, sophisticated and like developed version of divine command theory, which just, it's like it, you, you know, divine command theory is often dismissed pretty quickly in some quarters. <clears throat> and I think Adams just shows like, there's a, you can, there's a lot more that can be done with divine command theory than you might think. And so um, it, it's a shame that there's not more engagement from non-theists with, with a book like that, just as one example. Right. Yeah, that's um, with the talking about, you know, things existing objectively, you know, um, and, and having to have, you know, these various explanations of how they can exist by, you know, positing a God or something like that. I think that was in your debate with Craig. Uh, I think that was one of the fantastic points that you had made when you were, you know, comparing, okay, so uh, you say this and I say that, and you say this and I say that yet we have the same problem. If, if this is going to be an issue, which, you know, kind of comes down to like a symmetry breaker. Why, if my issue uh, I mean, if we both have the same issue, why should I adopt your, you know, idea of it? Yeah, that that's right. I mean, that's a great description of one of the main points I've, I often try to get across in thinking about non-theistic moral realism versus theistic moral realism. So just to kind of flesh out a bit what you said there, I think, the you know, one of the... Um, 
one reason I think people find something like the moral argument for God's existence compelling is it is very intuitive to think like, how can there just be objective moral truths or principles just sort of floating, not grounded on anything? How can they like just be there? Uh, and so the moral argument or the theistic position is often advertised as, well, all of these moral truths are ultimately somehow grounded in God. So they all have this thing that underwrites them or supports them in some way. This kind of spatial metaphor here. Um, so one of the points I really try to press is, uh, I think that when you look at the these theistic approaches carefully, you'll find that invariably there is some, there's, there, they always have at least one moral axiom that's just there floating, you might say, which isn't itself grounded. Uh, so that I think the this appeal of the moral argument, in my view, is ultimately kind of misleading. It presents it as an asymmetry where a view like mine has these ungrounded moral axioms, but theism can ground everything in God. But I think just as you said, in fact, we're in the same boat. We're sort of playing the same game. It's just the moral axioms are a bit different. But, um, you know, I think this is true of Craig's version of divine command theory. I think it's true of uh, Robert Adams' version of divine command theory. And by the way, this this point is not a criticism of the theories. It's rather making the point that um, they're ultimately in the same position of a theory like mine, which is we've all got these brute facts, uh, <laughs> brute moral facts that are... <laughs> Not grounded in something else is why one of the reasons I wanted to come on your show. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so the idea that that the theistic view has everything grounded in God, when you look at it more carefully, I think is actually not not really true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That, that's that I think is, is is a hugely important point in this in this uh, sort of debate. Could uh, I haven't you I haven't heard this um, language used. Um, in this aspect uh, may just be me not coming across it or, you know, obviously I don't study it. I'm not an expert like you, um, but um, could one say that, you know, uh, that moral realism or moral facts exist? Could they say that that's a primitive notion? Um, is that? Yeah. I think, I think, uh, well, it, I guess it depends, you know, true philosopher, it depends on what you mean by that, but, <laughs> but it, 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 it kind of sounds like, uh, if, tell me if this is, is the way you're thinking of it, where, I mean, let, let, let's just sort of back up and just think of, um, reality or, or whatever truths or facts there are. I mean, at least to me, intuitively, it seems like, you know, it's often said that explanation has to come to an end at a certain point. Everyone's got to get to something where you just say, well, that's just how it is. And I have no further story. I have nothing else to say. Right. <laughs> um, this, this is why, you know, this is the classic example of the little kid who keeps asking why. And at a certain point, you just got to put a stop to that shit because it's like you just really hit the ground level. Absolutely. <laughs> Partly for sanity, psychological reasons, but also it's like it just it just bottoms out. And, and, you know, on the theist side, it, it, um, God is kind of the foundation, right? So th this is why the, you know, anyone who's looked 
familiar with debates between theists and atheists is familiar with the, the atheist question of like, um, okay, so God created the universe, but where did God come from? Uh, and I, I think the theist has, has frankly a decent answer, which is, well, God didn't come from anywhere. Um, God exists necessarily. There is no further explanation, cause, source, foundation for God. God's just there. That's it. That's the bottom level. And uh, I think every view has to have a bottom level like that at, at some point. So that's one thing. You always got to get to some, you know, the, a brute fact of, of some kind. And I think the same is true of morality, um, just considered in itself. So that if there are, if there's going to be any sort of objective morality, there's going to have to be some bottom level of moral or ethical truths or claims, basic principles or whatever they are. Um, and they're not going to have a further explanation or ground. Uh, and there, you know, there's a ton of debate about what these axioms or maybe primitives might be, but I don't think it's an objection to any view to say, well, your, your ethical view has a, a moral axiom or moral primitive. That can't be an objection because if you're a moral realist, you're going to have to have something like that. Uh, at some point, that, that's how it seems to me anyway. I don't know. Does that tell me, does that sound like yeah. what you had in mind by primitive? Yeah, that's more or less what I, what I was talking about, you know, typically like, um, with like a, of course, uh, the way that I'm used to, you know, hearing, uh, primitive notions is, you know, it's just not definable any further by any other yeah. concepts. You know, it is like you're saying, it's just, it's like it, it kind of, you have to have a foundation or, or a starting point, yeah. um, you know, the, or we're into infinite regress or, or infinite regress of justification or, you know, things like that. Or in so, this case, like explanation or grounding or something like that. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and just to this is all our, our discussion, as I think about it, has been pretty abstract to this point. Maybe just to, you know, might be useful to have some sort of simple examples to think about. But. You know, one of the things that happens in in moral philosophy is there are debates about what. Well, there's a long history of people trying to capture like the one principle of right and wrong that kind of sums it all up. So, Kant, for example, um, has has the so-called categorical imperative, and at least one version of it. You know, it seems like his basic moral principle is uh, you you've got to. He says you've got to always treat a rational being as an end in themselves, which is kind of jargony. But the way I understand it is this, it means uh, rational beings have intrinsic worth that always has to be respected. And Kant thinks like that's the, that's it. And when it comes to right and wrong, that's the foundation. That's the one axiom. And everything ultimately can be derived from that. Uh, but now if you if you are like, OK, but what's the ground, you know, for this basic moral principle? Well, we've hit the we've hit the bottom level. Um, that's that's the foundation. That's the axiom, and other other things can be derived from that. Other things are explained by that, but that's kind of the foundational principle. Without again getting too much into this rabbit hole, the utilitarians think that well, right and wrong is all about consequences, and so maybe they think the fundamental rule is like um, you should our our basic obligation is to do whatever will maximize utility produce the best consequences. Um, but if you ask them like, well, what's the ground for that? I mean, that's it. That's the, that's the axiom. Uh, and I, and the key point here for me is I think the theists are in the same camp. They have axioms. I think they're different axioms. We all just have different axioms. So it's, it's no objection to say, well, you've got an axiom in your moral theory that isn't further grounded or justified. 
again, we're all in the same camp. Uh, I think if you're a moral realist at any rate. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would typically agree. Um, you know, if, if I wasn't at the yes, I would still, you know, lean, uh, moral realist. Um, it just, you know, it's, it just seems, you know, intuitive. It's, um, you know, and I haven't found any kind of, you know, defeaters, you know, undercutting, rebutting defeaters to, to make me question, you know, that intuition. It, in fact, many other people yeah. have the same intuition. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I mean, it seems like uh, we're, we're not going to have much of a debate between us. It seems like we're kind of in the same, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, same camp. Um, but I think uh, just to kind of connect what I was saying to the moral argument, you know, and, and William Craig, of course, is a very effective, um, is a, just a very effective presenter. It sounds, it sounds compelling as hell when, like when he does it, like sometimes when I hear him, I'm even like getting sucked in like, yeah, this does sound pretty good. <laughs> no, no, wait, I got it all figured out. <laughs> but uh, but he, he gets a lot of mileage and, and really this force out of like, when, when he talks about the idea of <clears throat> what he calls atheistic moral realism, um, there's a, you know, his standard presentation is a ton of stuff about how can there be morality just sort of floating it's ungrounded. Um, and, and it's, it sounds, you know, compelling, uh, until again, you come back to this key point, which is when you look at it more carefully, the theist is actually in the same, in the same camp. So I do think that's a very, it's, it's an important point because the, the rhetorical force of the, like, how can you have ungrounded objective morality? It sounds really good. Uh, so it's important to kind of think about that. And, and see, wait a minute, maybe is the, is the theist position actually any better uh, in the end? So uh, on that note, would would you say that, that there is um, an ontology to um, your version of uh, moral realism? Is there, there, does it have, you know, a specific ontology to it? Yeah, so ontology being like what, what are the things in reality? What are the things that exist in order yeah. for there to be uh, this objective morality? Yeah, I think so. So I guess what uh, my ontology would just be. Uh, so let, let's maybe let, let's 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 try to work with a kind of simple example, and maybe um, we can just take you know something like uh, suffering. Um, there's all kinds of suffering and so on, but, uh, you know, just think of some very painful experience that, that you've had. And so that, that painful experience, it has various, um, natural or empirical features. I mean, here, depending on what your view in the philosophy of mind is, there might be some debate, but stuff happening in the brain is at least related to it. Some people would say it's part of it, or maybe that's all there is, is, is brain activity. Others would say, well, it also has um, certain feelings or sensations as part of it, or maybe that's really, you know, what it is. But those would all be at least in some sense, natural uh, features of the pain. But then as a, uh, you know, your typical moral realist is going to say, well, it also has this other feature, which is it's bad. (laughs) And, uh, and the badness depends on some of these other things, especially like how it feels for example, but uh, the badness is something over and above how it feels. 
So the ontology is just going to be, I, I tend to think of it in terms of features or properties of things. So like an experience of pain or suffering. Uh, my ontology says, in addition to the physical, mental aspects of that experience, it also has a moral or value aspect. It's, it's badness, which um, is a feature that is not just reducible to, it's, it's a different thing over and above the other features or properties that it might have. So you get an ontology where you just you have a world with things in it and they have different kinds of features and properties, objectively speaking. And among those features and properties are ethical and moral ones, which are their own their own kind of thing. Um, so it's a world that uh, there's this great phrase that this contemporary philosopher Wes Morrison used. He says the world is shot through with with value, which I think is a nice sort of way of, of thinking of it. You've got the world of physics. And, and the sciences and so on. And you've got, you've got along with that, a, a, what you might say is a moral world or a moral reality, which I think depends on the natural um, world, but is, is again, over and above it. it it's um, not simply reducible to the, to the natural stuff. Does, does that? Yeah. Yeah. Give, yeah. Absolutely. A sense of it? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, what absolutely. reality looks like on this way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. And see, that's what that's one of the things that why I, you know, really didn't have a reason with, um, you know, an atheistic moral realism is uh, because, I mean, it seems perfectly legitimate to say that um, in virtue of suffering, you know, and, and the ability to know what suffering is and, and to uh, to not you know, it seems we have an obligation to, you know, prevent, especially if it's something we don't enjoy. Why should we, you know, and it can be so horrendous for us, you know, using empathy. And to me, that seemed like a, a perfectly good reason uh, to say that it is objective, you know, in the um, uh, whether it's, you know, some kind of um, telos or, or, you know, the kind of in the. I want to say in the spirit of, you know, um, but I mean, there's something else I'm looking for. Okay. But basically, you know, even so when they use, you know, uh, counters like, well, what if they can't feel pain, you know, and things like that, it, the reductios it's, it's like, yeah, but it's still, it, you know, it, it's, it's this idea that we don't want to harm, um, you know, uh, sentient beings or, or mm -hmm. you know, uh, things like in that kind of category. Yeah. I, I think um, that way of putting it is I'm very sympathetic to so that, uh, you know, and, and suffering I think is sort of an obvious example. It seems bad, at least in, in itself, I guess it's important to um, acknowledge that a distinction is often drawn between like intrinsic badness which is yeah. the badness the thing has just in itself. But of course there's plenty of suffering that then leads to good consequences. So, you know, depending on the case, suffering might be intrinsically bad, but extrinsically good because it has good consequences, you know, unpleasant, painful medical treatments or exercise right. <laughs> might fall into that category. But um, yeah, and my, my way of thinking is that our, our moral obligations or duties are grounded partly in these, these values, these intrinsic values, good and evil. So, um, you know, a, a sort of silly example, but you're, you, 
gets the point across. You're walking along and here's a, you see a guy standing there flailing his arms on fire and next to him is like a big bucket of water. Okay. And he's too, he's too panicked to, you know, put his arm in the water. Uh, and it'd be very easy for you to take the bucket and just douse the, his arm. He's, he's in pointless agony. You could easily stop it. You don't even have to like ruin your suit or anything like that. You know, it uh, takes like two seconds. You've got a compelling reason to, to do that. Um, namely to stop the suffering, to stop this terrible thing that's happening to this person. That's a moral obligation. You know, you ought, you ought to do it. You're acting immorally if you, if you fail to do it. And you don't, you don't need God in reality for any of this to be true. I mean, that's kind of a, it, another way of sort of thinking of my view is I'm trying to sort of build morality out of things outside of God. So, so this example, I think, is helpful, at least as far as understanding where I'm coming from. You, you just build this situation where here's a guy he's in agony. You could easily stop it. Um, that seems to be enough to give you the obligation. You don't need God. Now, if you add God and God has also like commanded you to help people in that situation, well, now you've got like another good reason to do it. Uh, so it kind of adds on a second layer, but you don't, the key point is, and I think this is perhaps what you were tell me if you agree, you don't need that other layer in order for the obligation to exist in the first place. Yeah, that's the, kind of what I was um, yeah, getting to. That was, you know, it just, to me, uh, I think that um, uh, theism would, um, at least for me, theism just seems to fit well with um, uh, having objective morals um, and, you know, more realism, more facts existing. Mm -hmm. But... I don't think that it's one of those things that theism necessitates mm -hmm. or, or more realism necessitates theism. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, I, I, you know, I tell people all the time that, you know, I kind of hold to things uh, probabilistically, you know, um, I have credence and confidence in, in, in certain things. And mm -hmm. um, so I would say I have, you know, uh, a pretty decent credence that more realism is true, but far less that theism's required for it. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't think there's that, like Craig and others argue, um, that there's this uh, this knockdown. How, how could you not see it? How could you not? How could you know? It just it they almost presented as being compelling, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, no, it's really not. I mean, it fits well. Yeah with the idea, but it's just, mm -hmm. it's not super compelling, at least to yeah. me. So, uh, so yeah, you'll get no argument for me. I think <laughs> what, where, where things get interesting is uh, Craig, as an, as an example, uh, I mean, I think he does think it's pretty obvious that in his mind, this, there is this, you know, entailment. If, if moral realism is true, you got to have God, but he does, he does offer arguments in support of that connection. Yeah. And so, that's where I think the action is, right? Trying to uh, think about those arguments. And I think, you know, to my way of thinking, a lot of the um, work of answering the arguments is offering a basically a plausible picture or account of, of how there could be some of these moral truths, um, even, even if there isn't uh, a God. So again, that, that scenario with the guy with, you know, with the arm on fire where you're trying to tell a story that's got features that seem sufficient on their, on their own to give you the obligation, even if you don't have God 
uh, as part of the story, you know? So I think that's one helpful way of trying to answer some of these arguments. Yeah, I agree. And uh, so just quickly kind of on uh, the, the Craig thing, um, when he talk, he when he talks about having a grounding, um, what are you? What is your thoughts or ideas about metaphysical grounding itself? Because there seems to be a lot of people today who are just kind of pushing it to the side. You know, uh, why do we have to have a grounding? Why do we, you know? Um, and then you have others like I don't know if you're familiar with um, Dr. Sidjuade who actually has an argue, argument for God built on grounding. Um, okay. I don't but, know that one. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty interesting. But um, okay. but it also re- relies on divine simplicity. So that's its own issue. Okay, um, yeah. But so many people just, uh, to me, grounding, it just seems to be natural, you know, to go from, you know, the mind being grounded to the brain, being grounded mm-hmm. to the body, to, you know, all of these things. But of course, it's when we get to, you know, the uh, metaphysical part of it where people are like, "Eh, we don't we don't need to have this grounded. What what are your thoughts on metaphysical grounding? So it's another one of those terms. It's not an ism, but yeah, it can mean a lot of different things. Um, I think in the case of uh, in the case of Craig, I, I believe that what he has in mind when he speaks of objective morality being grounded in God is really, um, well, it's a little tricky. He doesn't, he doesn't quite want to commit himself actually, but at least sometimes it sounds like he's saying that, um, certain features of morality are just reducible to certain, uh, features involving God. So a good example is he, the language he often uses in explaining on the theistic view the nature of human moral obligations is that he'll often say they're constituted by divine commands. Now, again, okay. Constitution is a little tricky, but, but one, at least possibility, one natural way of understanding that is what he's saying is that um, what human obligations ultimately are, are nothing more than divine commands. So there, I mean, if that's at least on that way of thinking of it, the grounding is just um, it's the way that water is grounded in H2O. Water just is H2O. Like, when, you know, if you want to understand water, knowing that it's H2O gives you its true essence. So at least one understanding of Craig's view is like, he's telling you what the true nature of human moral obligations are, which is that they, they just are divine commands the way water is just uh, H2O. Just so that's, that's grounding is reductive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I cut you off there. What did you say? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, no, I said, yeah. It's, so basically, he's just saying it's a tautology. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, water is H2O. Is, well, this is interesting. This is where things get a little uh, technical. Um, I think, you'd, see, I think he would say it's not really, a, it's not a tautology in the sense that um, he, he doesn't think that um, obligation or moral obligation, like the phrase or the words, they don't mean divine command. So it's not a not a claim about language just the way i mean this is the water thing i think is actually helpful like the word water doesn't it doesn't literally mean h2o it's more that um we now think that h2o is kind of the true essence of of water but it's not true by definition it's something that had to be discovered right uh 
And so, uh, and so I think that's how Craig and, and especially Robert Adams really makes a big deal out of this, where Adams says, look, moral obligation, the phrase, it doesn't mean divine command. It's just that it turns out that the essence of moral obligation is divine commands. Again, kind of the way water, uh, H2O rather, is the essence of, uh, of water. So, yeah, I think at least that's one way of understanding Craig's talk about grounding. It's, it could just be re reduction. Um, but then again, I, I'm, I'm making these, I don't want to be overly sympathetic to these views. Even, I think they're super interesting, but, uh, I mean, my, my point is, again, when you look at these views more carefully, I think what you'd find is that, um, you, you only have a partial reduction. There's a kind of leftover <laughs> moral residue of, of moral claims or axioms that, that aren't reduced to anything else. And so again, back to this, this point that I keep pressing on, which is that the, the theistic and non-theistic moral realists are ultimately in the same camp when it comes, same boat when it comes to these moral axioms. Um, that's, that's how I see it anyway. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, I'm actually, you know, uh, finding um, some kind of anti-realism more and more appealing. <laughs> oh, the dark side. Oh boy. Yeah. No, well, I wouldn't go as far as air theory, but you know, um, <laughs> some kind of, you know, just a, some kind of nominalism or, or, you know, something it, it, fictionalism, I guess it, it's just mm. these kind of useful concepts, you know, of yeah. uh, how we talk about the, you know, the way reality works or if, I don't know. Okay. Just <laughs> yeah. That's a whole, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole other, uh, of course, very interesting debate, but um, yeah. yeah, as I, as, we, as I was saying earlier, that's one I, where I haven't done as much um, work. I've, I've really sort of ended up focusing on kind of the, Theist, theistic versus non-theistic moral realism. That's my uh, wheelhouse, you might say. <laughs> have you, um, be, having such similar views, have you uh, um, done work with uh, Schaefer Landau? or? Um... Uh, we, we haven't like written anything together, anything like that. I know him a bit and we've been, um, we, we've hung out at conferences from, from time to time. I was going to ask if you, if you uh, ever go to his conference, uh, there. Yeah, I haven't actually been to that one. I mean, I, it's, oh. I would like to go. Um, but I, uh, you know, they, they, they usually publish the papers later on. So I always read the papers when they, when they come yeah. out, but, um, we've, we've crossed paths and uh, I think we've probably, um, or at least I would say I've sent him stuff and asked for his, you know, that I've written, asked for his feedback. So we've kind of interacted in that way. Um, but I, but we haven't, you know, sort of worked together or anything, uh, like co-authoring anything like that. So who would you say probably influenced your view the most? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think historically, if, you know, more recently, leave aside Plato, <laughs> but someone like, uh, in the early 20th century, a philosopher, some people may have heard of G.E. Moore. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he I hand. think, is kind of the contempt. Yeah, the hand guy. <laughs> <laughs> greatest <laughs> reputation. Of, <laughs> greatest solution to any philosophical problem. <laughs> Boom. Uh, uh, we're not brains and vats because check it out, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. Um, yeah. But he... He had this, I think, non-naturalistic version of moral realism. So, you know, I, I do think Plato in some way is is kind of the roots of this thing. But then in the more contemporary scene, 
more is is kind of the one. So I, I think um, I, again, when you were talking to uh, Schaefer Landau, I think he had kind of said a bit about the history of, I guess, recent, you know, like the last hundred years philosophy, where um, you had more defending this view. I think uh, probably er, you know early twentieth, early to mid twentieth century, and then it really fell out of favor. That philosophy, like anything else, kind of has these fads that come and go. So it it it, it it was sort of abandoned. And then within the last maybe 30 years, it sort of made, made this comeback. Um, but I think, um, so, so, but, but, and I had, I had studied more in grad school. And so I think he would certainly be one influence. Um, and maybe I should mention if, if folks are interested in exploring this view further, I think some of the, you know, really good philosophers besides Schaefer Landau who are in this camp today would be D David Enoch, is one he's got a book called taking morality seriously um and then uh, michael humor also really good on this his, his he's got a book called ethical intuitionism and it, it's interesting because they don't really focus on the non-theistic aspect but um it, it's it's there implicitly so yeah. if if people are interested in um, looking into this view further taking morality seriously and then especially ethical intuitionism i think those are two two great books yeah, I'm familiar with humor. I, I'm pretty sure I've heard um, Enoch. I don't know if I know a whole lot about him mm -hmm. off the top of my head. Um, yeah, but both uh, really sharp and, and good. Uh, yeah, good books. Well, we are a bit over an hour and uh, want to be respectful with your time and uh, wanted to say thank you so much, Dr. Willenberg, for coming sure. on and um, letting us pick your brain and help us to get at least a little more smarter today. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, I hope it's been accomplished. I, I appreciate it. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, especially I, I appreciate the adult beverage aspect. Uh, oh yeah, uh, absolutely. That's yeah. That's, um, that's one of the way to keep the, uh, the, the ADHD and checks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's my secret sauce. <laughs> okay. I gotcha. Yeah. We all, we all do. We do. We have to do. Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, no, I, I hope people found it found it interesting, and and uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have um, any uh, anything that you wanted to um, plug or or promote or? Sure, I, I guess I should mention my books since I've been yeah. <laughs> mentioning these other guys. <laughs> but uh, I, I so I've got two books in in this sort of uh, ethics without God genre, and uh, the first one, and that's this is probably the one that. Um, the the best one if you're sort of starting out and you just want to learn more about this idea is called uh, value and virtue in a godless universe. Uh, and then there's a that, so that was the first one. And then more recently, there's a book called Robust Ethics. Um, that one is a bit more tedious <laughs> if you're not a professional philosopher it's a text but uh <laughs> see, so if, you, if you're interested in uh if you're like oh, well, i would like to you know look a bit more into this the ideas of this wielenberg character check out value and virtue in a godless universe if you can stand that then you might want to take a shot at, at robust ethics which is kind of the um just later on uh same basic theory but just trying to sort of develop it more and it gets more into more details and so on so yeah, those is are my it, two plugs. So I have your um, uh, DePaul link. Uh, that's DePaul with a W, not DePaul. Um, right. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, your field uh, uh, field papers link there. Okay, is Great. on the DePaul is your, are your books available there? If not, I'll get the links to the books and put them on. There. Um, I think if you go to uh, if you're talking about my my web, my personal website somewhere has links uh, to those okay. books. But you know, there, Amazon is always a good place to go. And since my name is unusual, I think if you go to Amazon and just type in Wielenberg, that'll that'll probably do the trick. Yeah, German guy. Yeah, no. is it German? <laughs> it is German. That's a <laughs> Wielenberg. Yeah, that's right. That, I think that's probably the original correct pronunciation. So yeah. Well, thank you so much again. Um, I man, I got. The time flew. I, I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed this conversation. It was, yeah, it was likewise. Th- thanks again, man. And and uh, I, again, my condolences about the beard. And I, I, hope, that, <laughs> I hope to see it return uh, soon. So, well, that's just another argument for, or, or another feather in the cap for the argument of uh, uh, evil and suffering. That's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Exhibit Thank A: you. your your beardless face. Yeah, that's what, right. Thank you so God much. Would allow that. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else, thank you guys for uh, tuning in and, and checking out the show. And don't forget to visit. Uh, he's got a lot of interesting papers that he's written at the Field Papers link I've got. Um, he's got his DePaul University. I have his DePaul University link, um, a personal page there. Um, and I will update it with uh, the book titles. And, uh, and I appreciate those recommendations. I definitely um, I, I'm more of a papers guy, so I don't. I don't go and, and be like, okay, wait a minute. What books are there? What Because I just, mm-hmm. uh, the books I'll get, uh, I got about four of them here now that I get bookmarks in them from yeah. where I've stopped there and then went to another one and went here. Yeah. So, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Va- Value and Virtue in a Godless Universe. That one's pretty short. So yeah. uh, it's not a long book at least. Well, thank you again. And thank you everybody for joining us. Um it, don't forget, uh, in the description, I have the content creator fund. We have uh, people that um, are uh, looking for funding and the funds are low. So anybody that feels compelled to at least share it um, for the uh, Christian friends, pray, and uh, we'll get some of these people helped out that, that want to make content. Uh, you guys have a good evening. Thank you.